Hello and welcome to the EMJ Podcast. I'm Simon Carley. And I'm Rick Boddy. And today we're going to take you through some of the highlights of the August edition 2016 of the EMJ. Another great month in the EMJ, Rick. Some really interesting papers. And we're going to try and highlight those ones which have caught our eye, the editor's choice, and things which we think might change your practice. So Rick, what really struck you this month? What was your editor's choice this month? The editor's choice was an interesting retrospective cohort study from Japan where the authors looked at the accuracy of a Japanese triage scale, JTAS. And they looked at the accuracy of this scale for predicting hospital admission, but then they looked at the accuracy when nurses had been allowed to down triage or up triage according to their own clinical judgment or gestalt. And they showed that the algorithm was more accurate when nurses were allowed to subjectively change the triage category. So there is something in Gestalt. I think that nurse versus computer ended up with nurse winning. Yeah, but what do we really mean by Gestalt? What is Gestalt? Well, it's that kind of gut feeling, isn't it? That something might be wrong with the patient or that the patient is generally okay. And it allows you that human judgment that an algorithm can't actually get you to. Yeah, and we've had a, a lot of thinking about Gestalt over the years, and one of the things that we think is going on when we look at trials like this is that people are using data when they see a patient, which might not actually be part of the scoring system when you're doing things like triage or you're doing a, a risk stratification score, but they're picking up on other clues, so things like, you know, is the patient sweating, do they look unwell, that kind of thing. So it's not magic, we don't think, we think it's just that people are putting additional information in. And I suppose that's not particularly surprising when you have experienced triage nurses, because that's kind of what they do. Absolutely, and I think it's good data to have, but it's actually how evidence-based medicine was supposed to be used in the first place. An algorithm's supposed to be used alongside the clinical judgment of a clinician, a nurse or a doctor. And that's what they studied here, and they showed that actually that approach seems to work better than just following the algorithm. And that's one of the reasons why in, in our practice we don't tend to refer to things as guidelines, we call them clinical decision support tools, because that's really what it's about. So that was really interesting from a, a triage point of view, obviously big interest in triage here in Manchester where Rick and I work. What else was going on? There's some stuff around there about head injury and, and different times. Yes, I was very interested in a study by Marinkovic et al, where they looked at 101 patients presenting to the emergency department more than 24 hours after the onset of a head injury or after a head injury. Interestingly, we have fantastic guidelines in the United Kingdom to tell us which patients might need a CT scan, the NICE guidelines. And the authors looked at the accuracy of the NICE guidelines in these late presenters. What was really surprising is that the NICE guidelines missed a lot of significant injuries in this group. In fact, 25% of patients with a neurosurgically significant injury were missed by the NICE guidelines. I think it's a really interesting group. A lot of the guidelines that we deal with are often devised and, and subsequently validated around limited time periods. So we'll say, well, this only, we're only going to test in the original studies up to a certain point after presentation. But like in this situation, we often see patients who present outside of the, of the time period. And so it's always a question about whether or not those tests are going to be valid for that group. And this is really interesting because I find this group of patients quite challenging in the ED. It's quite a number of people who come in two, three days down the line, say minor head injury, you know, persistent headaches, feeling nauseous, not necessarily vomiting. It can be quite a difficult group to deal with. Absolutely. And we should acknowledge that there are some limitations to this evidence. The patients here all had a CT requested. So it's possible that the very low risk patients were excluded. They didn't have a CT scan. And therefore, we overestimate the incidence of neurosurgically significant abnormalities. But it certainly raises a red flag. 
and tells us that just because you present late after your head injury doesn't mean that you're at low risk for a neurosurgically significant injury. In fact, the incidence of such injuries was quite high in this study. But also, there's a red flag being raised that we might not trust things like the NICE guidelines quite as much as we would in early presenters. The number which really got me was you said it was quite high. It was actually just under 10% of these patients had a, an abnormality, which is very high. I also see quite a variation in practice, in, in, in clinical practice, between what people do with these. So I, th I think it's really an interesting area. And if you're a junior physician in the emergency department, there's probably a group of patients in whom you should be getting a senior to have a look at them. So it's, it's quite complex. Absolutely. Now, paediatric procedural sedation is something which we practice here in Manchester, but I know it scares a lot of people. Sedation itself scares a lot of people. Children scare people. So I guess if you put the two together, it's a worry. What's the... What's the journal got to tell us about the state of paediatric sedation in the UK? There's a really interesting qualitative analysis from focus group data looking at barriers to procedural sedation in children in the United Kingdom. And it was really interesting that there are a lot of barriers identified. We're still finding it quite difficult to deliver paediatric procedural sedation services in the UK. You should really go and have a look at this paper by McCoy et al. in the EMJ this month to have a look at just how many things there are that stop us from doing procedural sedation in children. And there's a linked editorial from the United States where the authors tell us that in the United States, this is really a given. They do procedural sedation all of the time as a routine and feel that it's almost barbaric to subject children to general anaesthetics and not deliver an adequate procedural sedation service. That's going to challenge a few paediatric anaesthetists out there. We've all had it said that um, paediatric general anaesthesia is a gold standard. I think there is something in that, but there's obviously resource implications next to it. It's quite disruptive to the family and getting things done in the emergency department is great. We've kind of adopted adult procedural sedation in the UK quite widely. There does seem to be something slightly different about children. I suspect it varies quite a lot depending on where you are. If you're in a, a specific paediatric emergency department with people who've got a particular interest in that, such as we do have locally, and there's a lot of paediatric sedation goes on. If it's something which is very infrequent, it might be a bit more challenging. That's right, and that possibly is one of the um, uh, important barriers that it's not done so frequently. But the literature on paediatric sedation goes back a long way. I mean, I remember as long ago as 1998, Ray McGlone was yep. writing about the use of ketamine as an alternative to brutocaine in children. Uh, we know that it's a good thing to do. Unfortunately, we've identified that there are some important barriers. Now it's time for us to build on this and improve the services that we deliver for children needing procedural sedation in the UK. And I think our experience is, is that this is something which is achievable in most emergency departments. Absolutely. And there's no reason to think that we can't overcome those barriers. OK, let's finish off with something which has got me thinking, actually. And it's something which I guess reinforces my views over the years. And this is about whether or not the way that you interact with patients really does affect uh, how they're going to think about you and how they're going to treat you in the future. We've done a lot of communication skills. We're very keen on making sure that people understand that being a good doctor is not just about the clinical skills, but it's how you interact with people. And this month is kind of, this is really interesting, looking at how likely somebody would be to sue you depending on whether they like you. I, and this is the whole thing that, you know, you can be a great doctor, but if you mean to patients, you get sued. But you could actually be a terrible doctor that's so nice that you never get sued. We wouldn't want either of those scenarios. But this was a real insight into that. Yeah, fascinating study. Uh, Smith and their group took a very innovative approach. They randomised 
patients to see a video that either had a normal doctor-patient consultation without any empathic statements, or the same video, but with some empathic statements from the doctor. So it makes the doctor seem nice. And they asked the patient afterwards how likely they would be to sue the doctor if something had gone wrong. What they found is that when empathic statements have been given by the doctor, that doctor was probably less likely to be sued by the patient, or at least there was an intention to sue the patient less. That's reassuring that if we're nice to patients, we're less likely to get sued. Unfortunately, it didn't rule it out, so it doesn't have 100% sensitivity. You can't say that just because you're nice, you're not going to get sued. So we and have to be good as well. And of course, this didn't actually test whether people were actually sued. So it's an experimental design, but it does give some reassurance and some validity to that idea that we should work on our communication skills, not just get, not get sued, but that in itself is a proxy marker for patient satisfaction. Absolutely, and that's a really important outcome of this research and a focus for work in the future. Very good stuff. So, lots more in the journal to look at this month. We've also got a few blogs coming out. They're going back and forth now, and we've got some really interesting insights into some of the papers coming out through the blogs and some random stuff which we're trying to get out there as well. There's also an EMJ poll run by Ellen Weber this month looking at head injuries. So if you're on Twitter and you're following Ellen Weber at EMJ Editor, you should have a look at that and please take part in the poll. It's quite interesting stuff. And we'll be back again next month for more primary survey, for more stuff from the EMJ. And of course, we're always interested to know what you think, what you want to talk to us about, and anything else that comes to mind. I enjoy reading the EMJ. Take care.